0: Welcome to The Lead, a podcast about how to get ahead in the news industry from the people who did. I'm Kira Posey. On today's episode of The Lead, I'm talking to Daniela Zaltzman. Daniela is an award winning documentary photographer with work in National Geographic Magazine, Smithsonian Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, and in the New York Times, just to name a few places. Her work has focused on Western colonization with projects focusing on the rise of homophobia in East Africa, to the forced assimilation education of indigenous children in North America. Today, Daniela and I talk about her award-winning ongoing project, Signs of Your Identity, which tells a story of survivors who were forced to attend assimilation boarding schools for indigenous children, how photojournalists can reimagine documentary photography to tell compelling stories, and how she became interested in journalism. But before we get to our conversation, here's a word from our sponsor. This episode is produced by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership at the University of Georgia's Grady College. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash Cox Institute. Now, here's the lead. And I'm here with Daniela Zaltzman. Daniela, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being on. And I'm so excited to talk to you about your background and your work and some of your inspirations. But I want to start with uh, a little bit earlier in your career. So, you originally graduated from Columbia University with a degree in architecture. So with that background, like, when did you become interested in documentary photography and in photojournalism in general?
1: So I've actually always wanted to be a journalist. I would say since I was about 12 or so, that was sort of my, my career goal. Um, and I knew that I wanted to get to New York as quickly as possible. I considered that sort of the media capital of the United States, and I wanted to be able to start working for newspapers, uh, which as a teenager was sort of the end-all, be-all of being a journalist to me. Uh, and so I got into Columbia, uh, immediately joined the undergraduate student newspaper, and that in a lot of ways became my education. I did study architecture. Um, my parents, my mom is a lawyer, my dad is a doctor, my mother is an immigrant, my dad is the child of immigrants. so I think you know they had slightly different career aspirations for me. Um, and so I studied architecture perhaps to placate them for you know another few years. Um, but I always wanted to be a journalist. I sort of fell into photography once I started working for the student newspaper, and from there I began freelancing for local New York City newspapers while I was an undergrad. Um, but journalism was always the goal. What was your first like
0: journalistic assignment that got you out into the real world, like and like reaffirmed that this is what you wanted to do?
1: Um, you know, it, I was so lucky to go to school in New York City and have access not only to New York City media but to an incredible, vibrant, international city. Um, you know, I think there are a couple sort of standout moments. I, you know, I do remember I started out as a writer. I really wanted to be a news reporter and I still do write quite a bit, but I had a friend who was the photo editor at the time and there was some crisis. It was during midterms. He couldn't find anyone to take a photo assignment. And, you know, then attorney general, John Ashcroft was coming to speak at Columbia. And so he just shoved a camera into my hands and said, please do me a favor, go photograph. It's boring. It's a man at a podium, but please go take photos. And I yeah. was totally hooked. I just loved it, um, and I loved the sort of the immediacy of photography and how democratic it can be as a medium. Uh, and then in terms of, you know, actually starting to work, I, you know, immediately began freelancing for the New York Daily News, uh, a New York tabloid. And I also started working very regularly for uh, the largest French-language Swiss newspaper, very randomly. But as a senior in college, I ended up covering a lot of the 2008 presidential campaign Um, didn't really know what I was doing, didn't really have the right equipment, um, but spent, you know, covered the New Hampshire primary, the South Carolina primary. Uh, You went to both the DNC and the RNC, uh, and that just solidified, it was such an exciting time to be a young journalist. It was an incredible time to be following around, you know, the then junior senator from Illinois um, while he was on the campaign trail, and I just, you know, everything about it sort of affirm to me that this this is what I want to do. News photography is the thing that I want to do.
0: I also wanted to ask you about your award-winning project, Signs of Your Identity, which examines the survivors of Canada's Indian residential schools, which were assimilation boarding schools for Indigenous children. You've expanded this project, which includes, of course, your photography and interviews, but also featuring this work in galleries. And um, you've also put out a book And in addition, there's also an educational curriculum supported by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. And this project tells the history of what survivors experienced in those schools and how their experience shaped their identity and lives. So what was the inspiration behind that project and how did you get involved with it?
1: Yeah, so I had actually, through the Pulitzer Center, I had uh, sort of the first long-term project that I worked on was looking at the rise of homophobia and anti-gay legislation in Uganda. Um, You know, after about as much as I loved political photography and news photography, I would say after about five years of working as a newspaper photographer, I realized that my strength was really in connecting deeply with people and I, I didn't love the daily news cycle of having at most you know two hours to work on a story and then having to you know hop back on the subway and go to the next uh, assignment for the day's paper. Um, so I started to try to figure out how can I transition to more long-term reporting and projects where I spend weeks, months, maybe even years on the stories that are important to me. The Pulitzer Center became really instrumental in my ability to transition uh, into long form work in about you know 2012, 2013. And related to that work in Uganda, they sent me to the U.N. AIDS conference in Australia in 2014. And I happened to read a statistic in a U.N. report that mentioned that First Nations people in Canada, uh, indigenous people in Canada, have one of the fastest growing rates of HIV of any group of people in the world. And I'm not a public health expert, but that didn't make sense to me. You know, Canada has incredible nationalized health care. It's much better than America's healthcare system. And so I went, I wrote another grant application. I spent about a month uh, driving across Canada, interviewing HIV positive First Nations people. And almost every single person I talked to mentioned their time in residential school. And back in 2014, that was not something that we were really aware of in either Canada or the U.S. For, you know, for, for non-Indigenous people, uh, and I was just horrified and pretty angry that I just had missed out on this 120-year-long chapter of U.S. history, of Canadian history, that it was not common knowledge. So, you know, that that kicked off what has become a, you know, it's, it's still a work project in progress. I've been working on it for eight years and counting now. Um, interviewing at this point, I would say about 300 survivors across uh, Canada, the United States, and Australia. And yeah, you know, I think it also represented a pretty significant departure from my work as a straight documentary news photographer, where my role is to photograph things in front of me as they happen in order to tell a story. And to some extent, I realized that there, there were some pretty severe limitations to photography as a medium in the context of this history, because I was encountering hundreds of survivors of this horrible system who were still deeply impacted by things that had happened to them 30, 50, 60 years ago, but I couldn't photograph in the schools anymore. And you know I had tried to do some work around the public health crisis and HIV, but that was just one small symptom of this larger project. And so in order to actually represent the story, I ended up making these double exposure portraits that superimpose survivors with the sights and the memories of their boarding school experiences. And, you know, I think at the time that was considered, you know, it's, this isn't really journalism. We can't really publish this. This doesn't sort of fall within the purview of what we do as documentary photographers. Um, and I think, you know, to my surprise, but also, you know, to my uh, relief, I think that that sense has changed quite a bit in the past eight years.
0: Can you talk about how that sentiment has changed and also like how journalists who are in news photography might be able to branch out into uh, more personal projects and projects that aren't what they might consider like traditional?
1: I think there is so much room for us to reimagine what documentary photography can be. You know, if we consider the ways in which we've utilized the medium since photography was created, it, it has changed Almost not at all. Um, you know the the technical equipment that we use has evolved dramatically, but the process itself, the act of what we do, has has not in the context of journalism. And I do think that it's time, and that we have the space to push the limits of how we utilize photography as a storytelling tool. You know, it's I'm not necessarily saying that we should go quite as uh, as crazy as fine art photographers do, but. As long as it is in service to the stories that we are looking to tell, as long as we are transparent and honest with our audience, with the people whose lives we're photographing, with the people we work with, editors, and so on, I think that we have every reason to want to push the limits of the medium because the way we interact with photography has also changed so much since its inception. You know, the average person now consumes more photography in a day than someone in the 1970s did in an entire year. And that's a crazy thought that, you know, we we are interacting with imagery constantly. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. Sometimes it means that we become fully desensitized to images of pain and trauma and suffering. And so it really begs the question, do we need those images? Are they still serving the same purpose that they did, say, in the 1970s when Nick Ut made that photo of a young girl escaping from, you know, napalm blast in her village, that image, I think you can argue, contributed to turning the tide of American sentiment towards the Vietnam War. We see images like that on a day-to-day basis. We're seeing those images on a daily basis from Ukraine, for instance, and I'm I'm not convinced that they hold quite as much power. And so the question becomes, I'm not saying that we can't make those images and that we shouldn't consume those images, but I think we have to be much more judicious and much more careful about how we use them and how we consume them.
0: Yeah, That actually brings up a question that I have about deciding what details to include in your stories. So in your interviews with people about their lives and backgrounds, you also encounter people's trauma and stories of survival. I struggle in my work to decide what details contribute to the story versus what a personal detail is that I might should not tell, that the source might find, you know, too personal for telling. Have you ever experienced that struggle in your own work? And what is that line where you decide that a story of someone's lived trauma will contribute to the larger story that you're telling?
1: I think it's really up to the person who experienced the trauma. And, you know, I think Mm. that we find, you know, we, as humans, I think we all heal in very different ways. And for a lot of us, healing involves telling stories and sharing and feeling like you are sort of commiserating with other people who can understand and empathize with your experiences. And for other people, it that is not the way that they want to heal or process grief and trauma at all. And so I think really the answers to those questions have to be guided by the people who are generous enough to share their stories with us. And I, you know, I've seen such a range in eight years of interviewing survivors who have largely experienced a horrific level of sexual physical assault of medical experimentation i mean of just like the worst things that the canadian and american governments did to young indigenous children and there is an you know an equivalent range of the degree of comfort people have with you know yes i want people to know this and i want them to know my story to you know what i'm still ashamed and embarrassed There's stigma around this thing and so i you know i'm happy to talk to you i'm happy to be photographed but i don't want to talk about any of those memories um So I think it's deeply personal and it's, really up to us as journalists to be sensitive about respecting the wishes of each individual.
0: Thank you. I also wanted to ask about your project, uh, Women Photograph. You are the founder of Women Photograph, which is a nonprofit which seeks to elevate the voices of women and non-binary photojournalists. Um, And you offer a private database with more than 1,300 independent documentary photographers, which is available to any commissioning editor or organization. And you also have a mentorship program, which pairs industry leaders with early career journalists. So can you tell me the inspiration? behind that project and how students and uh, early career journalists might be able to get involved.
1: Yes. So uh, as with most of the things I do, my motivation was rage. Um, So, you know, I think I was (laughs) at a photo festival in France uh, in 2016 and I was, you know, I I think I'm lucky in the, at this point in my career, most of my work is grant funded. I rely much less on publications and editors, uh, which means that I can open my mouth maybe a little bit more than other photographers necessarily feel they comfortably can because they need editors to like them and hire them, which is completely understandable. Um, But I was having a conversation with the director of photography for a large magazine. And, you know, maybe it had a glass of wine or two and was maybe interrogating her about why more, you know, that publication didn't hire more women. And the response I got was, well, there just aren't that many women photographers. If I knew where to find them, I would hire them. But there just aren't that many of them. And so I stomped back to my Airbnb and I started a Google form and, you know, six months later launched a nonprofit that I think at the time had 500 independent women and non-binary visual journalists. Uh, And yeah, we're now at 1,300 and I think we're about to add uh, 250 more photographers. So, you know, we're closing in on 1,600 members and yeah, we were a grant-making organization, so we've given out almost $250,000 worth of project grants. We have an annual skills building workshop um, where we, uh, you know, for the past few years it's been virtual, but, uh, you know, normally we try to gather in person and talk about things like how to write good grant applications and what best safety practices are in the field when you're in a hostile environment and uh, things like that. Um We have the mentorship program, which is open to all early career uh, photojournalists with sort of five years of professional experience or less, regardless of age. Um, And we also collect a lot of data on hiring and publishing statistics within the industry. So, you know, while the database is restricted to women and non-binary photographers who have been working for at least five years professionally, all of our other opportunities are open to any women and non-binary photographers. So our grants, we've definitely had multiple student winners in the past. Um, Our mentorship program is explicitly meant for early career photographers um, and our workshops are are open to anyone, any women, non-binary photographers who want to join. So yeah, I mean, I, you know, I definitely encourage current students, uh, early career journalists to take a look and explore some of those opportunities.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Do you have any other advice for student journalists or early career journalists who are looking to make their way into the field and get a start on uh, their career?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, as I'm currently teaching at the University of Montana for the semester and something that I have said over and over to my students who are mostly about to graduate and I think are dealing with a fair amount of stress over, you know, the financials of being a freelance journalist is do whatever you have to do to survive, whatever you need to do to pay your rent, to cover your overhead cost. I don't care if you're a bartender, if you photograph weddings, if you need to do graduate headshots, if you are a caddy on a golf course like literally do whatever you need to do to survive. There is no shame in any of those side hustles, but always make sure that you are taking time to orient yourself towards the work that you care deeply about. You know, don't don't get lost in you know the the things that will help you financially survive. I know that stuff is really important and you have to do it and you should feel no stigma around any of those things that you have to do but always try to carve some time out and remind yourself this is what I care about this is what I'm working towards and I'm going to make sure that I save time for myself to work on these projects um, I think that's that's the thing that's hardest to figure out and juggle when you're starting out and when it's stressful because I think you know being a freelance journalist is a really stressful thing and it's not for everyone I think you need a, a particular, mindset and personality to make it work without just absolutely losing your mind. Um, But if you're committed to that and it's something that you really, really absolutely want to do, just make sure that you're always pointing yourself towards that work that you eventually know you want to be making.
0: Thank you so much for that. Yeah. And I just wanted to say again, Daniela, thank you so much for joining. Um, I know that I, and of course my listeners too, will certainly benefit from uh, hearing about your work and of course your advice because I think it's, I think it's really important. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Daniela for joining us on this episode. I'm your host, Kira Posey. Our producer is Dr. Keith Herndon, the executive director of the Cox Institute. To keep up with The Lead and hear more from media leaders, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at The Lead Podcast. And a quick note before we go. This is our last episode of the season and my last episode as a host, unfortunately, and I'm so sad to say it. I cannot believe that it's already over, but I want to say that I've had a blast being the host for the lead these last two seasons and a big thank you to you, our listeners for tuning in, hearing from media leaders, and hearing me ask big questions about journalism and storytelling. Like I said, it's been a blast, but I know that you are in good hands with our upcoming hosts for next fall, who will be announced soon. Again, thank you so much for listening these last two seasons. It's been a blast. We'll be back in your feed soon.